Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. And today with us, we have a special guest, Professor Michael Dunford, is a visiting professor, Institute of Geological Sciences and Natural Resources Research, Chinese Academy of Sciences, and Emeritus Professor, School of Global Studies, University of Sussex, and Managing Editor of Area Development and Policy. He graduated with a BSc in Geography and MSc in Quantitative Economics from the University of Bristol. His interests are world development at multiple geographical scales from the local to the international. He is also a visiting professor at universities in various cities in Europe. He is a prolific author and academic papers and books as well, too numerous to mention, and I mean that. Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. Well, thank you very, very much indeed. I mean, I'm absolutely delighted and very, very honored to be invited to come and, and talk to you, and thank you for an over-generous introduction. <laughs> I don't think that was over over generous at all. I had to cut this down. <laughs> Originally, it was three times longer, but there's so much that you've accomplished, so much that you've participated in that it needed to be hacked down a little bit. You wrote an article entitled China's Development Path 1949 to 2022, in which you wrote in the conclusion that, quote, in 2013 to 20, it successfully completed an extraordinary campaign to end extreme poverty. At the same time, modernization goals involve a commitment to slower and higher quality development and scientific, technological, and industrial upgrading. In the new era, however, China is also seeking to identify a distinctive Chinese path to modernization that is innovative innovative, ecological, spiritually rich and equitable, and that enriches the lives of all its people, end quote. Could you identify one or two ways or strategies whereby a more economically equitable order is being pursued? I think, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that China is still uh, only an upper middle income country. Mm. It has the second or perhaps very soon the largest economy in the world simply because there are 1.4 billion people mm -hmm. in China. So one of China's goals is to continue its modernization path and to continue to increase the living standards of its people, which means that, you know, innovative development and in particular, you know, developing the technologies of the next industrial revolution, you know, to improve productivity and improve the quality of life and improve livelihoods are our vital goals. Mm. At the same time, I mean, the last wave of development in China, really up to the beginning of the new era when Xi Jinping emerged as the leader of China, in that era, China achieved extraordinary rates of economic growth, but at the expense, you know, of the environment, of significant increases, inequality, and also, you know, a number of social problems that really needed to be addressed. So one scene really, you know, actually since about 2000, China started to change its path, and that change of path has become much, much stronger, you know, after, after the end of the world financial crisis and when China's fiscal boost came to an end. So the first thing is, that, as I said, China wants to embark on a path of innovative development in order, you know, to embrace the technologies of the, of the next industrial revolution. But in terms of dealing with uh, common prosperity at one level, it speaks of 
three mechanisms. It speaks, first of all, you know, of addressing what it calls the primary distribution of income. So in other words, that means addressing wages, trying to increase wages, increase productivity in order to increase wages. But also, you know, through things, schemes like um, rural revitalization, it's seeking to mobilize rural assets in order, you know, through collective initiatives to generate um, property incomes, you know, for people who live in rural areas. So a whole series of actions really relate to what one might call acting in relation to the, the primary distribution of income. Beyond that, it's addressing questions of secondary distribution. Secondary distribution really means uh, income redistribution through the tax system and through the development of public services. And it has a whole series of ambitious plans, you know, to improve education. I mean, looking, helping disabled people, ensuring ensuring that the quality of education is equal, you know, across different parts of China. It's got a whole series of programs that are designed to address health insurance and improvement in the quality of health services. And there are also important programs, say, in relation to housing, you know, with major programs to construct low-income housing. In fact, something like 26% of the housing that's going to be built under the 14th five-year plan is actually low-cost housing, you know, designed to provide affordable housing for large numbers, especially younger people, you know, who are living in Chinese cities. And then in the third place, it talks about tertiary distribution. By that, it means that companies that have become very rich, individuals that have become very rich, have a responsibility to help those who have not yet become rich. And China also has these schemes of counterpart assistance, you know, under which rich provinces assist poorer provinces. I mean, they take cadres from these provinces to develop their skills. They send cadres to these provinces. They invest in development projects of various kinds. And in fact, there's a pairing, you know, of less developed areas with more developed areas. And in the case of Tibet, you know, every province in China is paired with Tibet and is expected to contribute to Tibet's development. So this process of tertiary distribution also plays a very important role in moving in the direction of common prosperity. I have so many more questions based on what you've said. Can I just dabble in some very basic questions before we move on to the heavier material here? You mentioned that even though China's now one of the two largest economies in the world, that because it has such a large population that it's not necessarily reaching all of the people in the same way, say, lifestyles are for people in America, for example. Does that mean that at 5.2 or 5.6% interest rate growth for this year and next year, potentially, that China's goal eventually somehow is to become four times larger? Is that or is purchasing power parity going to account for increasing the quality of life, even though China may not ever reach four times the size of the U.S. economy. I really don't understand when will lifestyle equality be closer between the developed world, between the first world nations and, say, China, for example. Is that even the right way to think about it? Well, you know, I think, I mean, the point is, there is a great deal that one can still do to improve the quality of life of large numbers of, of Chinese people. Mm. And we're, we're on the verge of a, a new industrial revolution, you know, which will transform our lives in many ways. I think human society, you know, will continue to develop, you know, there'll be a succession of transformations going on a long way into the future. So, you know, in a few hundred years time, our world will look profoundly different mm. from what it, the way it looks today. But I think that in that process, you know, China wants to take advantage, you know, of these 
opportunities that are offered by new technologies in order basically to improve the quality, the quality of people's lives while, protect, while achieving other goals, you know, such as protecting the environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that, you know, material, if we say material living standards, you know, the quality of the services that people get, the quality of the goods that they consume, all of these things will improve. And as they improve, if you measure them in value terms, it's quite likely that their value will increase. And I imagine that the value will increase faster, you know, in countries like China and other less developed countries, then it will increase in more developed parts of the world. So, you know, in the course of time, I mean, I think one thing that's really astonishing about China is this remarkable process of catch-up. Absolutely remarkable. You know, it's other countries, you know, other so-called Asian tigers, you know, in a way came from behind and closed the gap on, in living standards with the developed world. But China has done that with one-fifth of the world's population, mm. you know, which is an astonishing thing. But I think that in the course of time, and I really sincerely hope that we will see other parts of the global south follow a, a similar path, but follow a similar sustainable path so that they can lift their own people out of poverty and can enable their own people to enjoy good living standards. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll move back in the direction of a much, much more equal world, you know, in which, you know, wealth is in a sense shared much more equitably than it is at present. Mm, I hope so too. listening to The Bridge. In chapter six of your book, you write, quote, in 1949, new China emerged from the war of resistance against Japanese aggression and the subsequent civil war is almost the poorest country in the world. In 1950, the violation of Chinese territorial sovereignty and the need to deter a new invasion saw China respond to a North Korea request and enter the war to resist United States aggression and aid Korea. From 1949 through the 1960s, China was subjected to a sustained economic embargo imposed by the U.S. that expanded to cover medicines, tractors and fertilizers. And yet, in these extraordinarily difficult circumstances, the new China saw life expectancy increase from 35 in 1949 to 57 in 1957 and 68 in 1981, end quote. Many in the West see the 1950s and 60s in China as becoming less well-developed. The facts that you've cited from the World Bank show the opposite. Could you help us understand how China improved life expectancy under these circumstances? Okay. Can I just say first, I mean, sure. between 1950 and 1980, China experienced the most rapid, sustained increase in life expectancy of any country in the world that has been documented in the entire history of the world. So it was an achievement that was, has been unparalleled in human history. You know, that World Bank report, you know, published in 1983, was absolutely clear. Those early years were certainly turbulent years. But, I mean, those numbers clearly disprove what you said is a common claim. I mean, China's growth, economic growth in that period, average growth, was in excess of 6% per year, despite the turbulence of those years. And as the World Bank said, you know, China's most remarkable achievement during the past three decades was to have made low-income groups far better off in terms of basic needs than their counterparts in most other poor countries due to priorities attached to food, 
education and health. So, you know, in 1952, China completed the land to the tiller. So 700 million mu of land was allocated to 300 million farmers, mm -hmm. enabling them to produce their own food, to build houses on their plots of land, you know, to, to solve their basic needs. State Council published a very important report at the end of the poverty campaign, and that report actually began by discussing the extraordinary impact of that program in addressing problems of poverty in 1950s China. Beyond that, China's public health system played a critical role in basically addressing the impact of a series of infectious diseases that had a very large impact, particularly upon young children and women. So through addressing the problems of these diseases, it actually contributed very significantly, you know, to increase life expectancy. And then in the third place, you can say that, I mean, gains in school enrollment, you know, played a very important role because they linked public health education with education. And so through that, education itself contributed to the knowledge that enabled China to achieve this very remarkable achievement. You have to remember that at that time, the 1960s and early 1970s, the World Health Organization said China provided a role model, you know, to the rest of the developing world for ways in which one can address this problem of uh, the short life expectancy of people living in many parts of the underdeveloped world. Every time you speak, I have so many more questions because <laughs> I, I was guessing as a non-economist that perhaps the numbers were increasing in part due to the fact that conflict ended. Just that alone, I was thinking maybe it was related to the, the deaths caused by civil war and the Japanese occupation. Well, that clearly would have had an impact, but the point was that life expectancy was low in many other parts of the developing world in which also you, uh, there were perhaps fewer, problem, fewer problems of conflict. I mean, no doubt, you know, the, the turbulent, the hundred years basically starting with uh, the arrival of Britain and mm. with... Um, the Opium Wars. The Opium Wars, you know, until 1949, obviously were very, very costly in terms of their impact on, on human life. China started out with a level of life expectancy at that point in time, you know, that was comparable with that of many other parts, often lower, actually, than many other parts of the developing world. I think a lot of people get confused when we say that China has in some way solved poverty because it's the term absolute poverty, which is a specific like World Bank, UN term. So during the decades long pursuit for the elimination of absolute poverty, which succeeded, it's often claimed, including by me online, that China raised something like seven or 800 million people out of absolute poverty. Could you shed light on some of the strategies used to accomplish such a miraculous feat? Okay. The first thing I want to say, you know, in 2020, essentially China lifted all of its people out of poverty as defined by the Chinese 2010 poverty line, you know, which was an income in 2010 of 2,300 yuan per year. In 2010, 165 million Chinese people were under that line. Mm. And by the end of that period, everyone had been lifted above it. All the poverty counties and all the poverty villages had also been lifted out of poverty. And that in itself I mean, represents an absolutely extraordinary achievement. And I'll say something in a moment about how China you know, achieved that astonishing result. 
this number of 800 million, that basically comes from the World Bank. So the World Bank uses its 2011 poverty line, which is 1.9 PPS dollars per day. That line is very close to China's 2010 line. And then it applies that line in the past. So I guess it goes back to about 1981. If you look at that line in 1981, basically something in the region of 800 million people in China were underneath that particular line mm. at that point in time. And China itself, you know, almost all rural people were beneath that particular line. The thing is, however, that China had its own poverty line for 1982. And according to China's own poverty line in 1982, something like 250 million people were under the line, so a much smaller figure. Mm -hmm. You know, because basically the poverty line was a lower line, but mm -hmm. it reflected Chinese circumstances. So at that time, 250 million in the early 1980s. But it's important to remember that in 1981, China was clearly a very poor country, but the great majority of people, I said 80%, you know, were rural. At the beginning of the 1980s, the household responsibility system was being introduced. Every rural household had contracted land on which they could grow food, and then they could sell a part initially to the state and subsequently uh, openly on the market. They also had a GID, so they had a piece of land on which they could construct their own house. They were also able to grow their own food. They were also, many of them, able to make their own clothing. So in a sense, you know, at that point in time, many of their needs for clothing, food and shelter were met mm. through their own activity. So they didn't require a cash income in order to meet those needs. So all these poverty lines rest upon the assumption that you will only be able to satisfy these needs if you can pay for them, mm. you know, at current market prices mm -hmm. in the marketplace. So I think it's very important to bear that in mind. So... China's made astonishing progress in improving the average standard of living of its people. But, you know, these poverty lines, they tend to rise over time. You know, the real value, the real income associated with these poverty lines increases. And as it increases, you know, if you project it back into the past, you see even larger numbers of people falling beneath poverty lines. Mm -hmm. So the thing I'm saying is it's an astonishing achievement. Mm -hmm. You know, but I think it's important, you know, to not forget, you know, that China's achievements, you know, in the first 30 years were also astonishing, mm -hmm. were also astonishing. Beyond that, this poverty campaign, why? How do you deal with it? The first thing is that given that it's defined in terms of income, it basically means that you have to promote economic growth. So economic growth in China played a major role in lifting people out of poverty. If the distribution of income is relatively equal, it will lift a large proportion out of poverty. If the distribution of income is very unequal, the impact of growth on poverty will be smaller. But economic growth was clearly a major driver. So you have to explain why China was, and we'll talk about it later, why China was so successful in promoting and in achieving economic growth. Beyond that, you know, China has a whole series of poverty and very important poverty programs, of which, you know, the last is uh, we've been talking about was quite extraordinary. China basically invests in infrastructure. So it provides rural roads, uh, electricity, gas, water, telecommunications facilities, Internet access. So this infrastructure, you know, connects different parts of China together and gives people in poor areas, because these poor areas are often isolated. Many of them are mountainous. Many of them, you know, are short in various resources. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that puts in infrastructure. If you want to lift people out of poverty, you know, people need capital, you know, in a sense to get started. So community could grow mangoes. 
But if you want to grow mangoes, you need certain sum of money to get seed capital, and you need certain technical skills. So you need some way in which people are assisted, you know, so that they can start to develop activities that enable them to generate an income stream. So, you know, Li Xiaoyun is a professor at uh, the Agricultural University in Beijing, and he was involved with people he worked with in a project in Yunnan province, in a place called Herbian. It's near Sichuan Bana on the Laos border. In the community they looked at, the quality of housing was not good. So basically all the local residents, their income was about 4,300 per year at the outset, average income. It was very low, mainly because very few of them were migrant workers. It was a Yao minority, so it was a minority community, an ethnic minority. They were given by the, you know, I think provincial government, you know, 100,000 if they were a low-income group, poverty household, and 70,000 if they were anyone else, you know, to basically rebuild their homes. Mm. So one of the things they did was they built guest rooms in their homes. And then they tried to organize conferences, meetings, you know, provide facilities for people to visit, you know, the village, stay in the village and, and stay in these homes. So this was seen as a way of generating an income stream for these households. What they also did, you know, was they decided that um, they created a collective, you know, to basically manage bookings, to manage publicity, you know, to manage uh, payment. And they did that within the village, right? So they did that by doing that within the village, it meant that a larger share of the revenue, you know, that came from these activities were generated within the village. In many places, they, a different path is you get a, sort of a link between the village and an enterprise, and then this external enterprise provides many of the technical and managerial marketing skills that are actually needed to, say, commercialize certain local activities. So that played an important role. The impact was striking, you know, because the average income rose to about 19,000, you know, by 2019. But there was a big difference, you know, between those who built these guest rooms in their homes and those who did not, hmm. okay? I mean, it, it confronted certain difficulties, certain challenges, you know, because with the arrival of the pandemic, the number of visitors mm. dropped. And so people to some extent, but people still had contracted land, you know, so they were still able to use their land in order to meet some of their own needs. But it indicates that uh, when you deal with these things, you have to be very attentive, you know, to the, the problem of risks, you know, and the avoidance of risks. So they also got resources, you know, to improve the environment of the village and to provide training schemes, you know, in catering and so on, you know, because people needed to acquire new skills to be able mm -hmm. to engage in these activities. So I think that is sort of illustrative of the kinds of things that uh, China has done in, in terms of that poverty alleviation program. Beyond that, you know, I mean, I think there were at the peak, you know, there were 90,000 cadres in villages, basically dealing with the poverty alleviation program mm. at its peak. And these cadres, they were sent down, you know, people were assigned to individual households. And then they had, these poverty households were basically initially identified. People could put themselves forward and the villagers, you know, themselves, you know, decided who was poor and who was not poor. And then it was evaluated. And then all this information was recorded in the information system. And then these cadres were assigned to households and they had to work out an income generation program, you know, mm -hmm. for these people. So that was their responsibility. So, I mean, that quite astonishing really when you think this huge number of people you know were basically sent down in this way to help lift these people out of poverty and then beyond that you know for those who are not able to work you know there are other programs you know minimum income schemes debau schemes and so on so you know these sorts of initiatives you know played a very important role in this program in other cases you know where people were in very remote locations or in difficult to access locations or in ecologically sensitive areas there were relocation schemes providing people with new housing housing 
and linking the provision of new housing to an attempt to develop local economic activities that would generate income streams that would enable them, in a sense, to improve uh, their livelihood. Wow, that is so much to absorb. listening to The Bridge. Going back to that topic, uh, I've heard from a few people about this, and a lot of them have mentioned similar things. David Ferguson, for example, also talked about tourism and telecommunications, access to the internet, and bringing in agronomists to decide what grows best in you know certain areas so that they can grow produce, but not only just grow produce for the local economy, but able to export that because of the roads and the telecommunication and the skills that come with learning how the logistics nationally, internationally work. So it is truly, really remarkable. Are these same tools being used in the common prosperity scheme that's being undergone now? Or are they just these same tools being amplified? Or what is the, how are these techniques that were used for the last couple of decades transforming the new campaign to bring greater prosperity? I see common prosperity is in many senses wider, you know, in terms of what it is seeking to achieve. I mean, I think in, re- in relation to poorer communities, then I think that these techniques will continue to be used. But in the case of common prosperity, you know, I think there are a number of, you know, important dif- elements that in some ways are different. I mean, to, you know, to start with, you know, common prosperity is closely linked to this desire, you know, to increase innovation and uh, raise productivity because it's linked with the idea that one needs to basically raise wage income in a multiple multiplicity of ways. So, you know, for example, if you develop sort of new technology industries with much higher levels of productivity, then you mm. increase wage compensation. You can establish collective bargaining systems, you know, which increase the wages of wage earners and so on. There are parts that are similar. If you think about rural regeneration, that's, as I said, you know, designed to try to generate income streams by mobilizing local assets. And I mean, that is how that happened in poor areas, but I mean, you can go to relatively prosperous areas like, you know, I mean, Suzhou recently, and you go to these villages and you find these villages, you know, have created spaces, you know, for visitors at weekends so people can go out from towns with their children and there are play areas and areas where they can walk and there are cafes and there are tea houses. And so these activities are often organized by the rural collective, you know, and it, this then generates an income stream, you know, that is actually spread, you know, amongst all the villagers, mm. you know, so... That, in a sense, you know, is an application of a similar idea, I suppose, in a rural area, in a more prosperous part of China. But, I mean, if I want to talk about common prosperity, you know, it has other important dimensions, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I think there's a strong emphasis, you know, upon this whole idea of ecological civilization. All right, so a concern with improving environmental protection, protecting agricultural land, introducing, you know, stricter land use planning, creating livable, creating livable cities, you know, protecting aspects of the, the vulnerable ecological environment, because this quality of the environment is also a major driver of the quality of lives of, of everyone. You know? So you have got this kind of green dimension. And in China, you know, it's interesting, you know, because the CPC has adopted, has adopted what is called a second integration. You know, the second integration is the combination of Marxism with Chinese traditional values. You know, I mean, so China, several thousand 
thousand years of civilization, and there are very particular Chinese values. So one of the you know the idea is that you know there's no conflict you know between this tradition and modernity. In a sense, you know traditions you know are sort of reproduced in ways that are compatible with modernity, and you respect, if you like, many key features you know of a civilization. So another aspect of common prosperity, you know, and it means that China is trying to map out a modernization path, you know, that is rather different, you know, from the modernization path that was pursued in the Western world. And then, you know, in terms of governance, it's about improving the quality of governance. It's about uh, improving the relationship, you know, between cadres and, and local population. It's about improving democratic accountability. It's about improving, you know, the consultation with people, about enabling people to try to solve problems locally. So it's concerned with governance. I think it has, you know, a, a lot of different dimensions. It's then got, you know, it's then linked, you know, with the things that I mentioned earlier, you know, mm -hmm. not just improving uh, wage income, but it, but it rests upon the idea that the primary source of income for everyone is work, you know, but that's, a so, you know, because China's a socialist country and the idea is that everyone who is able to contribute, you know, should contribute in whatever way, in whatever way they can. But, I've, you know, I've mentioned, you know, these... Um, tertiary distribution and then the secondary distribution. So I think, you know, there's many things. Also, even with urbanization, there's linked to this idea of a kind of new type of urbanization, you know, with an improved layout of cities, you know, providing people with better access, you know, to the services that they need, you know, maybe addressing carbon emissions, you know, maybe through transformations in uh, the way cities are organized, the way activities are located, one in relation to another. So it's a kind of, yeah. Very complicated nexus of well, things. What's striking is, you know, the, the attention that is paid to detail in relation to a whole range of separate issues. I'm know? wondering a lot about measurability, but I don't want to ask that because it'll be too much. <laughs> the next question really is about a minister in Nigeria or Sudan or, or Argentina or Pakistan. I'm looking at China and I'm wondering, can these successes be reproduced in my own country? And that brings us a little bit to the Belt and Road, but not just to the Belt and Road, just, you know, Chinese agronomists have been going abroad for decades. Chinese scientists, technicians, doctors have been going abroad for decades. They're going abroad more now through the CIDCA and other organizations. Are the tools in China's toolkit for eliminating poverty, are those able to be used elsewhere? I think that's the big question the world is asking right now. You know, the first thing I would say is that, you know, given that World Bank definition of poverty are basically related to income levels, real income levels, it means that to lift people out of poverty, other parts of the world have to achieve economic growth as China has achieved economic growth. You know, so the, so the first question is, can other countries replicate China's economic growth? I guess the answer is maybe. You know, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, you know, I mean, China does speak of a more equitable international order. You know, China shows a path I would describe, you know, as, as neoliberal. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and China also was able to manage its integration into a, an international economic order. If you look at the rest of the world, essentially those parts of the world that chose a neoliberal path did not make progress in the way in which China made. And in fact, I mean, if you strike any, I mean, for example, if you look at Eastern Europe, it's quite astonishing, hmm. you know, because I mean, in the 19, early 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s, they in a sense embarked on, you know, a transition to capitalism, a neoliberal path. And I mean, if you look at the GDP, if you say the GDP in Shock therapy. 1989 was 100, right? The country that performed best was Poland 
in 2019, before the pandemic, it was uh, about 280. So it increased 2.8 times. The second most successful was Belarus, which did not choose a neoliberal path, but it was about uh, around 2.2. If you look at Ukraine, 0.6. Russia, 1.2. It's astonishing. China, 1,480. Wow. You know, nearly 15% increase. I mean, the difference is absolutely astonishing. So, you know, the question is, can parts of the global south, you know, achieve economic growth? Because they have to do that in order to get over this threshold. I mean, China envisages a different type of international order. And that order, you know, is much, much more conducive to the development of the global south. But you see the difficulties, many of them are trapped in debt, you know, and then unable to repay the debt, they need to take on more debt in order to repay Greece. debts that they've not paid. I mean, you know, China also, you know, when it developed, it took on debt, you mm-hmm. know, but it managed, you know, to its debt in a sustainable manner. You know, it managed to generate economic activities that generated revenues that enabled them to repay, you know, international debts at an early stage. And then later on, of course, it had large surpluses. So, you know, that's the, that's the first question. You know, can these countries achieve that? I've said maybe a more favorable international order. And I also think China's development support will also help other parts of the world because this investment in infrastructure, you know, that was in the sense how China started. Listening to the bridge. Isn't that what the Belt and Road in- Initiative is tr- attempting to do? I mean, it's not just mm. about roads and ports and uh, you know seaports and airports. They're also working on renewable energy projects, hydropower dams, all kinds of the same kind you mentioned earlier. One of the first things that China did was build roads, build telecommunications. The Belt and Road initiative oftentimes does replicate that idea elsewhere. Is there a chance that the BRI can contribute to an impetus to start up these sorts of behaviors? Okay. Well, let me just go back to China. I mean, let's say in the 1970s, you know, when the embargo was lifted, China immediately acquired foreign loans. Mm. And they, amongst other things, they got loans from Japan, low interest loans. And they repaid these. These loans were repaid with the export mainly of oil and also coal. But Japan built ports and other infrastructures, you know, provided resources and then provided complete sets of equipment, you know, for China to start to develop manufacturing industries, you know, to generate export earnings. So the the first thing you can say, the Belt and Road is doing precisely something very similar, you Mm. know. It's providing some of the key infrastructure, you know, when we say communications infrastructure, but it's also developing industrial zones, industrial Mm. sites. It's also, as you said, I mean, it's used to develop social infrastructure, you know, to provide services, you know, for people who, who work. So in that sense, it's in a way modeled, you know, on a path that proves successful, you know, in in the case of China. So I think, you know, you can say that those those ideas, you know, could play a significant role in, you know, helping parts of the parts of the global south to mm. develop. And I mean, obviously that's also, you know, in a sense in China's interest, you know, because an expansion of those parts of the world provide China itself with um, larger larger markets in new parts of the world. I want to ask you another question. It's not in in the content. The World Bank and the IMF 
I know that they have a bad history, but they're still essentially doing some of the similar things that the Chinese development finance is doing. It's offering loans. They claim to be low interest. The difference maybe be that China has a no strings attached policy and the IMF have tranches where they request that they change and liberalize neoliberal. They request that they use neoliberal tactics in their internal economics. So it's a completely different structure in that way. But is there still a role for the IMF and World Bank in helping the underdeveloped world come out of poverty or? Well, you know, I mean, you know, the problem of development is basically a problem of capital investment. Mm. Okay, so you have to generate capital to invest. Mm. And you, you can generate capital internally, you know, that's partly what China did internally, you know, through a price scissors, you know, with prices moving against agricultural goods and towards industrial goods, you know, providing a surplus for industrial investment. And if not, then you have to acquire it externally. And, um, you know, China is sensitive both. So, you know, the provision of finance, you know, for development is vital. But obviously, it's important, you know, that that finance is directed towards product, really towards productive infrastructure that is going to support the development of economic activities such that these other parts of the world can become so self-sustaining. Since the 1970s, you know, the World Bank has not prioritized, they've not prioritized infrastructure. I mean, as some of the Western development agencies, they emphasize, you know, uh, sort of specific poverty projects hmm. or the provision of technical expertise, you know, so they, they send their experts, you know, to give advice. So I think, you know, infrastructure is vital, you know, so in that sense, you know, China's contribution is particularly significant. I mean, hmm. secondly, you know, obviously all sources of finance are, are very important, you know, so, and it's interesting, you know, because China actually wanted to play a larger role in the World Bank, you know, but I mean, if it provided more of the equity of the World Bank, it would have a higher, larger voting share. Mm -hmm. And so it was not permitted, all right, because it would have increased China's voting share. Wow. So China had to find other ways of using its capital, all right? And that, in some ways, is disadvantageous, because if they were allowed to provide equity, you know, you can leverage it. So you can provide, you know, loans worth four times, you know, the equity, whereas China was forced into mechanisms which couldn't be leveraged. So, so know, China that, X and Bank, AIIB and things like that. Well, AIIB, yes, but also China China provided money to uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, to development banks in Africa, to the Asian Development Bank and so on. So, you know, so, but, you know, the contributions of all of these resources are important. But, the, you know, the point is China does not impose conditionalities. Hmm. You know, so this is a fundamental difference. That's the really fundamental. And that's very important, you know, because China, you know, China does not dictate, you know, the economic policies these countries should use. And in a way, I mean, to be honest, you know, how did China come from behind? Well, how did the United States come from behind when it caught up with Great Britain and mm. overtook it? Well, you read Hamilton and Carey, you know, they adopted measures that were, in a sense, protectionist because, mm. you know, these are infant industries, you know, so they couldn't confront, you know, international competition. You know, they needed time to build them. And mm. in, in a sense, that's what China did. But, you know, you can't protect forever because if you protect forever, you just end up, you know, a long way behind the rest of the world. But mm. on the other hand, you know, you need to use that as an instrument. Now, China does not prevent countries from using that as an instrument if they choose to use it. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't impose these sort of liberal measures, you mm. know, which in a sense inhibit, you know, the development of manufacturing industrial activities in, in many emerging countries. And I mean, in terms of loans, you know, I mean, China's loans are general. I mean, the World Bank and IMF obviously provide important development finance, but a lot of it is provided by private lenders. And these private lenders provide, they say they're a very high risk, so they provide 
loans at relatively high interest rates. I mean, mm. compared with them, China offers much more favorable interest yeah. rates. It lends to countries that these institutions and these private lenders will not lend to. Mm. I mean, in fact, it takes risks, you know, mm. because, I mean, it, it may well be, you know, that China loses on this. But, I mean, I think China, you know, and you've got a sense that China is prepared to do that, you mm -hmm. know, because in the longer run, you know, the improvement of the position of the rest of the global south will contribute to a, a world which actually would be much more beneficial to China than the current very unequal world. You know, everything I really was hoping to get out of the interview was right there. I mean, thank you so much. Actually, uh, you taught me so much in that one lecture. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Uh, I got next question. In an article you published in March 2022, Chinese Path to Common Prosperity, you wrote, and I wish I could quote the entire paper, actually, I really do, uh, quote, in order to realize fairness and justice and common prosperity, China will adhere to and improve its economic system, which is led by a state-owned economy that exists alongside a variety of other types of property, including foreign and private capital and widespread, strongly encouraged, and very important, innovative micro-entrepreneurship. In a situation in which disorderly capital accumulation, monopolies, and speculation will be brought under control, the rich will be able to remain rich, but the poor will not continue to be poor, end quote. This paper authoritatively argues that China is taking actions to create a fairer system for the least well-off. Could you give us a couple of examples how it does this? To some extent, I spoke about some of these things, but I mean, it's quite interesting if you look at the guidance, you know, that the state council provided to Zhejiang province, because uh, Zhejiang is an experimental area for common prosperity. And, you know, that guidance is very interesting, you know, because it, it says, you know, first, what is important is a continuous increase in income and reform of the income distribution system, right? So how do you do that? Well, I've said, you know, income depends mainly on work and people who can work, you know, should work. And obviously, you know, that means fuller employment and higher quality employment. It means lifelong education and training, you know, so people can adapt to technical change and technological change. It means wage bargaining, improvements in wages. It means expansion of middle income groups. And then it also involves, as I said earlier, you know, the return to society of the wealth, you know, that is mm. generated by those people who become very wealthy. So all of these relate to income distribution. Then it's aimed at reducing the gap, the development gap between urban and rural areas. And you can do that through starting to provide high quality services and good levels of service provision in rural areas, because there are large gaps, you know, at present large gaps between the quality and the quantity of service provision between urban and rural areas. New urbanization, so new sustainable types of urbanization. The prevention of housing speculation. This is the tax on second and third homes. Well, that could be a tax on second and third homes, which, you know, is something that really is, you know, quite important. I mean, China, China needs new sources in any case, new sources of government revenue, because they can't continue to use land revenue. So property taxes play a very important role. And the obvious thing, you know, is to tax second and third residences. Mm. It involves this idea that housing, as Xi Jinping said, you know, is to be lived in, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it means curbing uh, property speculation. It means developing affordable housing. And I've already mentioned, you know, there are major affordable housing programs. It means improved social security. It means developing the collective, the collective economy. It means getting more assistance to 
economically less developed parts of China. So addressing, you know, the West-East gap, mm-hmm. but addressing other gaps between different regions in China. Obviously also addressing the problems of Dongbei, you know, which is in a sense, you know, falling behind. So second, right, he then talks about independent innovation, you know, about increasing scientific and technological self-reliance, which is obviously vital, you know, especially Mm -hmm. in an era in which China faces completely unreasonable, Mm -hmm. and in many senses, completely unjustifiable sanctions and restrictions, you know, on trade and technology. The expansion of the real economy, ensuring that investment goes to the real economy and not, you know, towards uh, financial activities. And as Mm. as you said, you know, dealing with the disorderly expansion, expansion of capital. And then, as I said, you know, four, you know, the enrichment of people's spiritual and cultural life. And I've said that's linked to this idea of this second integration of Marxism with China's traditional Mm -hmm. culture, which is fascinating, you know, Mm -hmm. because we had this, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics, you know, was an adaptation, you know, to China's circumstances. And then this is a new initiative, you know, which, I mean, um, Xi Jinping spoke about about two years ago, you know, That links also with this whole global civilization initiative, you Mm -hmm. know, respecting all civilizations in Mm -hmm. the world, you know, and treating them, you know, as having sort of equal value. I'm still learning about this is a very new. It is new, but I mean, it's very, very, it's very, very important. You know, it's a completely different sort of vision of the world Mm -hmm. because it doesn't rest upon the idea that one civilization is superior to all the others and can, in Mm -hmm. a sense, tell other civilizations how they should conduct their affairs. It's Mm -hmm. it's trying to create a world of mutual respect, you Mm -hmm. know, but between different civilizations and I mean when we went recently to Tibet didn't we you know I mean I was amazed you know I mean the religious practice absolutely zero you know you know I didn't go that many places visible restriction you know you see ordinary Tibetan people you know you know I I also went to a really small town and I left the hotel one night and just to wander around the community I it was a very small town for China it was extremely small it was only about 20 or 30,000 people but immediately I found stores for you know Buddhist relics and things Uh like that and clothes and I, I was just really amazed that it wasn't just in Laza for like tourism to tourists to see, but it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous that people were able to carry out their own specific kind of culture in Shizang at the same time that China was clearly changing the economy to raise people out of poverty. Yeah, absolutely. Improve the infrastructure, yeah. And, you know, increase its accessibility, you know, lift people out of poverty. Absolutely. It's the same with language, you know. I mean, I was, whenever I was with, you know, Tibetans, all they did was spoke to each other Tibetan. They yeah. only switched into Mandarin, you know. Yeah, yeah. If I was there, my Mandarin's not that good, but I think it would maybe their English wasn't that good, so they used Mandarin. But <laughs> well, we actually so languages. Got, we, got to, no. we went to a school. And in the school, they were teaching English, they were teaching Mandarin, and they were teaching Tibetan. And there was Tibetan ubiquitous on ubiquitous. every classroom wall, every yeah. wall in the corridors. Yeah. And I went to that wonderful, you know, that that just surf new museum. I mean, it's very moving, very moving. Of course, everything there is in, you know, just Tibetan mm. and Chinese. Right, it, even the, the street signs. Everything. Yeah. 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 So I've said improve governance. Yeah. All right. Digital reform of governance, you know, developing grassroots governance systems, mm. improving democratic consultation, you know, with people. And then I said, you know, this idea, you know, as he said, you know, that um, 
lucid waters and green mountains are as precious as mountains of silver and gold. You mm. know, this is the creation of an attractive and livable and rural environment. You know, stronger land use planning, improved spatial organization I've already mentioned, you know, of cities, you know, ecological protection, you know, the creation of uh, of protected areas of nature, protection of uh, species of animals. Mm. This schemes, you know, in Tibet, you know, where local people are employed basically to monitor, you know, the mm. wildlife and in order to protect them and these uh, protect, you know, threatened species of one kind or another. I mean, just look at pandas alone yeah. as an example. Yeah. Protection of arable land, you know, reduction mm. in carbon emissions, you know, recycling, circular economy, you know. So all of these are aspects of this idea of common prosperity and mm. you just read you know the as i said that state council guidance i mean it's fascinating mm. you know because it sort of indicates the scope and as i've said you know each of these areas you know requires extraordinary attention to detail and it's so interesting in the way in which these things are threshed out mm. oh, yeah. you're listening to the bridge I'd like to talk about something that comes up in the West often. So a lot of what we do on the bridge is we address Western concerns sometimes. Mm -hmm. So a question about the China's people-centered approach to managing its economy. There are a lot of naysayers in the West who point to strategies, I guess in the last couple of years, especially in China, where monopolies have been broken up and say China's FDI will be negatively impacted by these crackdowns on free enterprise. So I think of the Ant Group, for example, or some of the education practices where a lot of foreign companies were coming in and teaching English at really, really extreme prices. And then suddenly they're like, oh, you know, we don't need this double set of education. And the double reduction policy was implemented. A lot of people in the West were like, oh, look at what China's doing. China's not allowing free enterprise. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, the crackdown on Ant was justified. I mean, they were lending money to vulnerable people, you know, at what potentially were going to be very high interest rates. So, mm. you know, I mean, I, you know, I think the unfairness in education, that's also very, very important. You know, I mean, I think dealing with the pressures, you know, that were placed on students by the educational system, you know, that is concerned with the quality of lives of young people. So these are aspects of regulation of a system, you know, designed to achieve sort of socially desirable outcomes. The second thing I would say, you know, I mean, you know, China became an upper middle income country, right? It did so by because it did not adopt a neoliberal path. But it adopted measures, I said earlier, it adopted measures that were adopted by countries that came from behind in the past, including mm. the United States. Mm. You know, I mentioned Hamilton and Kerry. So these were measures, they were measures adopted by Japan. They were measures adopted by South Korea, you know, in order to close the gap. So, and China does not impose conditionalities which prevent parts from the global south from also pursuing this course if it, if it <laughs> wants to do so. Difficulties at present, you know, have a great deal to do with the situation in the world. Mm. You know, I mean, basically, you know, I think, in you know, the next 10 years are going to be extremely difficult for many reasons. I think, you know, they're going to be difficult, you know, in part, you know, China wants a good working relationship with the United States, but the United States, you know, repudiates these attempts to establish a good working relationship, you know, unless it determines what the terms of the relationship are. Mm. So this is the first thing, you know, it's obviously a very difficult situation. At the same time, you know, if you look at the Western world, you know, basically the Western world is descending into recession. Mm -hmm. 
It looks that way. And you, I mean, just go look at the latest trade figures for China. You know, I mean, China's trade with ASEAN, you know, is strong. But I mean, their trade, you know, with uh, parts of the Western world is not nearly as strong as it was in the past. So that that's the first thing. At the same time, you know, many of the globe, much of the global South, you know, has not really emerged fully from the pandemic and is, you know, enmeshed in in a in, in a web of debt. You know, so that means, you know, the expansion of global markets, you know, is going to be relatively slow. And you've only got to look at, you know, the international monetary fund forecasts. I mean, they all indicate much slower growth. But in that growth, you know, China, and to some extent, India are basically going to lead it. I mean, figures are extraordinary. It's thought they're going to account for a huge share you mm. know, of global growth. So, I mean, that's the first thing I would say. Second, China, FDI, you know, in 2020 and 2021, China's FDI exceeded expectations. Hmm. So that actually showed, you know, that in spite of these regulatory changes, the Chinese economy remained very attractive. Hmm. I mean, China is to some extent moving in the direction of dual circulation, you know, in which Mm -hmm. the growth of the domestic economy is going to play a leading role. And that's also why common prosperity is important, because pulling up the incomes Hmm. of low-income groups is going to significantly, you know, expand the size of the domestic market. Hmm. So that is going to make, you know, the Chinese domestic market extremely attractive. You know, so a lot of foreign capital mm. is going to want to be part of it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely going to want to be part of it. So that's also, it seems to me, very, very important. And, you know, I suspect in the longer term, you know, if other parts of the global south grow, you know, then China will, you know, also, you know, develop new markets there. And the other thing I would say is that um, I think, you know, when China should target FDI, you know, it should basically target FDI that broadens its own export potential and that basically brings skills and technologies that strengthen China's long-term economic goals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, you know, that when the situation in the Western world is worsening, it may be possible to actually encourage companies, you know, to come to China by finding capital partners in China for them. And if you come to China, you know, and you operate in China, then you, in a sense, escape the sanctions also. So I think, you know, you know, the Chinese market is going to be very attractive. And there are ways in which, you know, I think China can actually make itself attractive, you know, to capital, you know, from abroad. So you're not all doomsday. I'm not saying quite the opposite. <laughs> you know, quite, you know it's, these are difficult times. You mm. know, there are difficult times for young people, especially young university graduates, you know, mm-hmm. because we have over 20 percent unemployment, you know, of young graduates. You know, the government's trying to find put in place incentive schemes to generate employment, you know, for young people. And obviously they're going to have to think carefully about what people study and, you know, the appropriateness of what people study, you know, to the sort of skills that are required and so on. So you shouldn't diminish, you know, it, these are difficult times. Mm. But there are difficult times throughout the world, and you can't see them improving significantly very quickly. Mm. But China is well-placed, and it will remain attractive. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen the same IMF you're talking about, and it does look very optimistic for India and China and Indonesia. And Indonesia. Yeah, they seem to be doing amazingly well. You're listening to The Bridge. In the journal Realis, I hope I'm saying that correctly, you wrote a paper, quote, in 70 years, how did the new China eliminate extreme poverty? So I have FIG online and I asked people for questions to ask you because I knew you're an expert economist and we wanted to make sure we asked some good questions. So someone named Mahesh KN asked, I believe e-commerce was significant contributor with educating people in the far reaches of the country on how to sell their product merchandise online. How was this done? Okay, that's a good question. 
I would go back to 2014. No, in 2014, the Chinese government established a national rural e-commerce comprehensive scheme. It was a comprehensive de demonstration project. Mm. And basically, you know, a whole series of counties, you know, were given financial aid in order to establish the infrastructure and education, you know, required to support the development of rural e-commerce. And then, you know, since then, you know, it has expanded very rapidly, you know, so basically you saw the development of rural e-commerce, development of methods of marketing. We've spoken about it already, about marketing local agricultural products, establishing smart supply chains, dealing ways in which one can basically reach the last mile and the way you can move products across mm. the first mile, you know, together. Yeah. So along with the whole series of educational schemes, so this in a sense created the skills and the infrastructure. And then you've got to recognize also, you know, that in China, what there are nearly 1 billion internet users. I mean, the, the extent of the penetration of the internet mm. is extraordinary. You know, mm. 1.4 billion people, you know, 1 billion people use the internet. So potentially, you know, China created a huge market. And it's interesting, you know, that I checked. I mean, the estimate is that this market will be worth 45 trillion, you know, by 2025. Wow. Which is an astonishing that number. That is astonishing. Wow. And, you know, so more recently, you know, you've got people in villages, you know, using live broadcast technology. You <laughs> yeah. know, so you can visit, you know, places where people grow tea or places where people grow mangoes or places where people grow various vegetables. And then you can order them online and then they can deal with queries and mm. uh, online. So this has created a sort of set of connections, you know, that enabled, amongst other things, the sorts of schemes we spoke about in relation to poverty alleviation. And then, you know, you've got a whole series of companies, you know, that have established these platforms. So Pindordor, Kwaisho, Right, mm -hmm. they, they've all provided platforms, you know, on which people, you know, can basically market things to a wide audience. And uh, it's astonishing, you know. I went to Anhui province. I remember, you know, I visited, um, I was taken to see, it was a cooperative, you know, but basically they were growing organic, they were growing organic rice and they were raising uh, xiaolongxia, crayfish, and they were also crab, you know, mm -hmm. and these are all marketed on the internet, you know, so you basically order on the internet and then they're delivered to your door, you know, they're then, yeah. they fulfill the order, you know, when you order it and then they dispatch it and you arrive the next day. So these are schemes mm. that one finds all over China, wherever one goes, but it was made possible, you know, by... The education process. The education, the infrastructure, you yeah. know, and then the the experimental. You know, it's very interesting. It's an experimental. You know, they do something, they, there's a trial, you know, there are experiments, yeah. and then they analyze the experiments, and they see whether the experiment worked, or they see whether there were difficulties. If there was a hitch here, you know, how do you solve that difficulty? Like what and they're then, doing in Zhejiang right now. Yeah, this is, well, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a common prosperity, you know, hmm. yeah, yeah. experimental gonna... zone. I'm going to skip the next question and go to the one about ports because I'm particularly interested in the BRI. So along with other colleagues of yours, I hope I'm saying their names correctly, Zhigao Liu, Jia Xunxue at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, you wrote about China building and managing ports around the world. And you analyzed it. And I, had, I read your paper and some parts of it I read many times, but I have to say the language of economics is really challenging. So you wrote, strikingly, in 2008 to 2017, export supply capacity, which is an important driver of GDP per head, increased in many of the countries in which these ports are located, particularly in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. After 2012, these increases were especially striking and were also recorded in some parts of the Middle East and North Africa and Europe. And it 
period in which the prices of fuels and minerals and metals fell, the low-income countries chosen for port construction projects saw increases in their share of world manufactured exports, suggesting the processes of industrialization were underway. I don't think most people, including myself, can easily digest what's said there. Could you translate that into a language that normal people can understand? Are Chinese ports being built abroad helping the economies and the recipient countries? Okay, just go back to what I said earlier about China. You know, in the 1970s, right, China developed new ports right, with Japanese aid. Mm. And they also developed railways. Mm. So, you know, if you are going to develop export-oriented industries to generate earnings right? Mm -hmm. To repay debts, if you have international debts, but to, to generate income, then you obviously need infrastructure by means of which you can move mm -hmm. these goods. Mm -hmm. And that also is very important in terms of inward investors, because inward investors mm -hmm. will only move in if you've got good, you know, transport and logistic infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons for China's explosive export growth is obviously the high quality of the infrastructure that was provided, you know, initially, you know, in these special economic zones. Again, you know, as in, you know, China's establishing, yeah. you know, things that are very close to special economic zones, you know, in cooperation, you know, with governments in, in other countries. So that's the first thing, you know, is what China did. So Without it, it's very difficult. You can't really develop export manufacturing, mm. all right? Obviously, initially, these ports were built to export raw materials, you know, because in the period up to the uh, North Atlantic financial crisis, you know, there was... Mm -hmm. China was growing explosively. There was explosive growth and demand for all sorts of natural resources. Natural resource prices were increasing. And that was also what happened with China, you know, because basically, you know, in the 1970s, there was an oil crisis mm -hmm. and Japan, you know, needed to import oil. So it was getting, it was importing Daqing oil, you know, but mm -hmm. it, it was a barter arrangement. You know, China gave oil, you know, for to repay these loans, you know, what? which is what China actually did also with Angola and for which it was criticized. But I mean, it's a perfectly sensible thing to do. You know, yeah, China, does, was, China was drawing on this. I own. think China is building schools in Iraq on the same principle right now. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. So that's the first thing, right? So if you develop this infrastructure, then you reduce transport and logistic costs. And, and also you facilitate, you know, the export, you know, because you have to move material things, mm -hmm. you know? That was the first thing we're saying. What we're saying is that this increases the export capacity. Mm. They can export more and they can generate a greater stream of income through exports, you know, basically by reducing these logistic transport costs. What is also the case is that they have to, maybe if you're, China imported whole, basically, you know, a whole plants, basically, initially, mm -hmm. you know, so if you're importing a lot of equipment, you know, again, you know, the costs to you of yeah. importing it reflect these transport logistic costs, you know, mm. so if you reduce those, you reduce the costs of acquiring a capital, you know, and therefore the amount of money you have to buy to develop manufacturing facilities. The manufacturing one is difficult, you know, because many people argue that China displaces manufacturers in other parts of the global south because it's highly competitive. But, I mean, I think the thing I would say there is that China does not prohibit these countries from introducing measures that enable them, if you like, to protect So they're going to allow to themselves, themselves to be regulated. Yeah, they, yeah. they, 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 they <laughs> but this, it's for, this, is, this is an important, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, what happens depends upon the choices they make as The well. agency is in the hand of the underdeveloped Their agency, country. Yeah, they have agency and they have to exercise that agency. Mm -hmm. Very, very important that they exercise it. Outcomes, you know, depend on, you know, the ways in which they exercise the agency that they actually have. But we were just struck, you know, that 
these countries in which, you know, in parts of the world we mentioned, you know, in which there were ports, they were maintaining their presence, you know, in manufacturing sectors. And we just wondered if that was due, you know, to the kind of advantages that stem from the creation of these structures that enabled them, you know, to deal with the material movement of goods. But certainly, you know, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at, say, Hambantota, which was a controversial port in Sri Lanka, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. You know, later stage, China decided to establish an economic development zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that economic development zone, you know, you can develop economic activities and producing manufactured goods, you know, which quite likely are going to be exported, you know, because mm-hmm. Sri Lanka has a free trade agreement with India, you know, which can then be exported to the Indian market, you know, mm-hmm. potentially by inward investors in Sri Lanka, but also potentially by Sri Lankan companies if they invest there in order to serve the, the Indian market. Hmm. Also, didn't the Sri Lankan port also become a BOT because now it's run by Chinese companies, but it's going to pass it's back. Joint, it's joint run. Yeah, it's for, joint run. It's for, going to pass a period back of time. into the Sri Lankan government's yeah, hands. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, the important there was that, you know, the reason it happened, you know, was so that Sri Lanka could repay debts. Right, know, it, it was for money. International institutions, you know, this was... Listening to the bridge. Okay, uh, let's. I want to move on. We. I don't think we have much time left. In fact, we may be over time already. You published an article on the BRI called "China's Belt and Road Initiative and Its Implications for Global Development." ACTA via SERICA. So, is the Acta via Serica? Acta via Serica is silk, huh? Silk. Yeah. Yeah. In which you wrote, the aim of the article is to develop this argument in more detail and to consider likely outcomes. In the end, it will conclude that a number of difficulties relating to the fact that the situation in the world today in 1945 are utterly different, making it probable that the BRI will play a major role in in creating a new multipolar world in which peace and common development prevail. I read a book on the BRI, and in it, it has a quote from Thailand's former prime minister. And he says something very similar, that the BRI is creating the groundwork for peace. Could you discuss how the BRI is related to the argument of peace? Okay. I'll start at this point, okay? Uh, If you read Giovanni Arrighi, his book, Adam Smith in Beijing, Mm. he points out that from 1428 until 1894, China was at peace, 500 years. Mm. There were conflicts along its very unstable northern and western borders, Mm -hmm. and China got pulled in, you know, obviously. uh, You had the Opium Wars and so on, but Mm -hmm. that was something that, you know, came... Foisted upon them. Foisted upon them. East Asia was at peace for 300 years. Mm. It was interrupted, you know, by two conflicts between Japan and Korea, and China was pulled into, to some extent, these conflicts. Mm. It's an astonishing fact. Mm. All right. If you look at the West, you know, it is almost permanently at war. Mm. Almost permanently. The United States, in all but four years of its existence, has been at war. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, Europe says there were 100 years peace, you know, 1814 to 1914, after the Napoleonic Wars. But in fact, in that period, you know, Europe was colonizing, you know, the new wave of colonization, mm. imperialism. So that's a very, very striking contrast. Mm. You know, a very, you know, I mean, it's a striking civilizational contrast between Western civilization and Eastern civilization. Now, when Westerners think about international relations, they think in terms of realist theory, you know, mm-hmm. balance of power, you know, they think uh, in the absence of a global hegemon or in the absence of a global leviathan, you know, there will be conflict in the world. Mm-hmm. 
absolutely. I had that argument this morning with someone. Yeah, this is the, they cannot get that out of their mind, mm. you know? Well, I mean, in fact, it was the Global Times, you know, excellent editorial yesterday, which actually, you know, indicated, you know, that where NATO goes, there's actually disorder, you know, rather than order, but still. So that's very striking. Now, you think about China, mm -hmm. you know, this is, you know, Chinese civilization. I mean, I think these notions, you know, you think about Tianxia, all under heaven, mm -hmm. about Gongsheng, right, which basically is about relationships, or Guanxi, you know, this idea of Guanxi, about reciprocity. Mm. These principles, you know, lead to a completely different view of the world, you know, because the starting point for China is the idea of harmony. Hmm. Right. The, yeah. the principal idea is the idea of harmony. I'm not sure if I can find it, but this leads China to see the BRI as something where China wins only if the countries with which it works also win. Right. Right. Win-win diplomacy. It, it, yeah. it, this is what it means, you know. It can only be successful if it's good for its partners. Mm -hmm. So this is a radically, you know, different sort of view, you know, that if we have a set of principles, you know, that we share, we can probably, you know, solve conflicts through negotiation and we can live in peace with one another. And that is, is in a sense, what probably happened in East Asia. You know, there was a shared, you know, the Confucian world, isn't it? It was a shared set of principles, you know, mm -hmm. that they basically all upheld. In that context, they could live in peace with one another. So that's the first part. The second thing I would say, you know, is that, you know, C made a very important speech some years ago when he said, he asked the question, he said, what is wrong with the world and what can we do about it? And he said, what is wrong with the world is that there are three deficits at that time. He said, there's a deficit of peace, there's a deficit of development, and there's a deficit of governance, and that the BRI is China's contribution to resolving these deficits. China subsequently said there's also a deficit of security. Mm. And China has emphasized the importance of this idea of indivisible security, you know, so no one should seek to improve their security at the expense of somebody mm. else's security. So, and then you have the five principles of peaceful coexistence, you know, if one goes back, you know, to Zhou Enlai, you know. So these are different principles, you know, shaping a, a world order. And to me, you know, the BRI and these other institutions that have been created, and I actually, it's, it's in the joint declaration, you know, between the Russian-Chinese joint declaration, you know, of early February, you know, 2022. This is a different vision of a kind of multipolar world, you know. It's about the uh, respecting, you know, the, the United Nations treaties as, you know, I mean, because those treaties, you know, there were important changes to those treaties in 1974, you know, Global South initiatives, you know, dealing with, you know, non-interference and mm -hmm. these sorts of principles. So I think it's a vision of a different type of world. And to me, that underpins the BRI. I mean, on top of that, it's all these practical development initiatives. But, mm. but to me, it's founded on these principles. And that's a very, very important dimension of it. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Dunford. Well, thank you very much indeed. I mean, as I said, you know, I mean, it's really a very, very great honor to come here and talk thank to you. you. Thank and you again. Thank you for your very interesting questions. <laughs> <laughs>